Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Saturday, April 7th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Historians Annette Gordon-Reed and Carol Birkin discuss the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. And now, enjoy the podcast. Welcome. Uh, I'm sure all of you, if you had the good fortune to go to Paris... Remember how it changed your life. I, for one, learned that you eat salad before the main course. Uh, But we have a very distinguished historian to talk to you about a very distinguished former president, Thomas Jefferson, and the impact of France in his life. Uh, Annette, how did Jefferson come to be in France? Well, he was sent on a diplomatic mission. Benjamin Franklin was the, the full-fledged minister to France, but he was there, sent there to negotiate trade agreements mm-hmm. uh, for the United States of America. He'd been asked to go a couple of times before, but because of his wife's Martha's illness, mm-hmm. he wasn't able to go. And she died in 1782, and he was really devastated by that. And James Madison and his friends thought that it would be a good idea to encourage him to go again, something to take his mind off of all of his troubles. He was not only devastated by Martha's loss, but he also had had a pretty pretty terrible time as war governor of mm-hmm. Virginia and had suffered some rebukes from people because of his actions or inaction, and there was an investigation, and he was absolved, but he never got over the fact that people criticized him. He was one of, a person who's a politician. He was incredibly thin-skinned. And this was also... Uh, is there a politician who isn't? <laughs> Bill Clinton. No, no, I no, I, no, Bill Clinton. I mean, Bill Clinton cares. I mean, obviously, they all care about what people think about them, but there's sort of a toughness and a resolve about him, but th- we're not talking about Clinton today. But... Um, so he was incredibly thin-skinned, and he was so he was upset about his wife's death. That was a devastating event for him. And then this sort of professional loss. So he was kind of licking his wounds. He needed to go someplace and get away from it all. So he accepted the commission, and he went in 1784. And so what was his time there like? What did he do? What did he accomplish? Well, he, well for what he accomplished, he learned a lot about government there from working with the other ministers of France. It was sort of an opening to his, um, sort of an opening in his toolkit mm-hmm. as a politician. He loved the place, the culture of the place, um, the music, architecture. He took James Hemings, um, an enslaved man, along with him to learn how to become a chef, to teach him how to become a French chef because he wanted French cuisine at, uh, at Monticello. And he went with his eldest daughter. And as soon as he gets there, he has a succession of places that he lives. The first one, he stayed in only a couple of, a short time, and then he went to another place that he, as he did in every place he went, he immediately began to remodel it. (laughs) He was only going to be there for less than a year, which is not typically what you do, but he really couldn't get the feeling he couldn't stand to be living in surroundings that were not exactly as he wanted. 
And then he found the Hotel de Langeac, which is a glorious house, and moved into it and proceeded to become the minister to France after Franklin decided mm-hmm. to retire. And so he stayed there for five years. It's an interesting thing to think about him because you think of Jefferson and Monticello, but he really, if you look up total up the years, he spent more years away from Monticello during the bulk of his life as a, mm-hmm. a public person than he did there. And he was five years in this cosmopolitan capital while people in the United States were still, you know, finishing things up with the revolution and the constitution and all of it. So he was away from all of that. Right, right. And what did he think? I remember him uh, writing how despicable he found European politics, cabals and plots and, and men without integrity. Is that your impression of what he... Well, it was, it's a much more, I want to use the word sophisticated, but it's, it was a, an urban area. This is a civilization that's, you know, a thousand years old, very advanced compared to Albemarle County. Right. And the politics there, the intrigue there, what really got him, I think, was, and I know, was the fact that women seemed to be involved in some of this as well. That was scandalous to him, the idea that women would be talking Politics. Now, this is Jefferson at, as a, as a, I don't want to say a young man. He lived a very, very long time, and I still think of this as the sort of younger period of his life. But his daughters are young at this point. He changed a bit later on as they got to be adults, and he, you know, he was much more. He talked to them about politics, mm-hmm. you know, openly all the time. But at this time period, he's still he's a middle aged guy who comes to Paris and he sees women out in the streets, as he says, you know, searching for pleasure out in the streets, which is kind of a, has a sexual connotation to it as well. Women who were on the street alone were Everything Franklin loved, (laughs) Jefferson was worried (laughs) about, right? Exactly, (laughs) I know Franklin threw himself into all of this. Right, right. You know, he tried to speak French and he spoke it badly, but, you know, he was in there and, you know, trying to be a part of that society, and people loved him. Yes. You know, the guy in the, yes. the, the cap, the fur hat that he wore, and everybody thought he was a Quaker, but he really wasn't. And Quakers are kind of cool then, and <laughs> they were anti-slavery and austere and, you know, made good furniture. No, that, that part of it, I just, made <laughs> I just made that last part up. But maybe they did. But, no, he was, there were opposites in that regard. Yes. And Jefferson really admired Franklin. And the interesting thing about Franklin, I'm sort of going off on a tangent here, but Jefferson and Franklin were great friends because Franklin died in early in the 70s. He died before all of the fights right. in the 1790s. Exactly. He never had to take a side. Right. So at this yes. point, Franklin is the elder statesman, and Jefferson really admired him, the scientific aspect of him, the, the whole, all of his accomplishments, the wisdom and so forth. So, but Franklin was a very different different character. He yes. threw himself into it. Yes. He he was much in the limelight. He he went to the salons, to French speaking salons. Mm-hmm. Jefferson joined English speaking mm-hmm. salons. Most of his friends were French people who also knew how to speak English. Well, Jefferson and John Adams then would have shared this view that Franklin was. Really, mm-hmm. uh, uh, his morals were low and well, but, sensuality. No, but, I, no, but I, I think I think John Adams might been might have been more censorious. I think he yes. didn't yes. he didn't like that aspect. Yes. Jefferson 
said, you know, he would, I'm sort of paraphrasing him, but he, he would rather, you know, laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints, essentially. I'm, that's Billy Joel. But he said in a, <laughs> Jefferson said it in, the, in a similar kind of thing. You know, it was not, he was not really, a, sometimes he comes across as moralistic, but there was a side of him. He, he liked that kind. He, I think he sort of, he would have tolerated that more than Adams. Mm-hmm. Adams was much more straight-laced um, than Jefferson. And and how did his this loyalty to France, this love of France, affect um, his attitude toward the French Revolution? And I love that you, when you emailed me, you said he was attached to the French Revolution longer, perhaps, than he should have. <laughs> and uh, you know, in my view, in a sovereign people, I think. Yeah. Way longer well, way than longer. he should yeah. have. <laughs> I mean, well, I'm not going to defend him all on that score, but I, he, France transformed him in another way too. Remember, I mentioned that he was upset with Virginia mm-hmm. when he left. Yes, and he thought these people—they're oh, not really worthy of the revolution. At one point, they ended up talking about maybe when things were going bad, appointing a dictator or somebody to actually make things go forward. And he was horrified by all of that. So, his combination of their what he thought was lack of faith in some people's lack of faith in the notion of revolution of the people and the way they had treated him, he sort of, ah, you know, I'm going to get away from these people. They're terrible. They're awful. Then he goes to France, and he has two reactions. First, as I mentioned, he loved the society, mm-hmm. culture, and so forth. But the politics, as mm-hmm. you said, kind of put him off, and family life there really put him off as well. Um, again, women, women mm-hmm. participating in politics, women the sort of open affairs, that kind of stuff that just would not have passed muster in Virginia. Those kinds of things bothered him. But he also saw, while he was in France, the extreme poverty mm-hmm. that existed there. Um, the revolution was, well, I mean, France was in, pre-revolutionary France was in turmoil economically. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that they had given us money, the United States money and supported us. They borrowed money in order to do that. Now, this was not total benevolence on their part. Right. They were fighting. This was sort of a Cold War, sort of, you know, a, a surrogate war mm-hmm. uh, against their enemy, Great Britain. Mm-hmm. And they had gone, they borrowed money and couldn't pay it back. And the treasury was broke. So things began to fall apart, trying to get taxes from people, trying to extract more Jefferson had gone in the countryside and seen peasants, and he saw a level of poverty that he thought you would not have seen in the United States. Now, he could have probably gone to some slave plantations and other places and said, no, there's a different... But these are European people. These are women in the fields, working in the fields. Now, of course... In Monticello, women worked in the fields, too. African-American women Women, worked in the fields. But this is a European male who's going out, and and actually white women worked in the fields, too. That was a myth that only black women worked in, you know, slaves worked in the field. That's Usually you have upper-class people are the sort of standard for what people Mm -hmm. say the society is like, but Mm -hmm. that's not really true. But he was shocked by beggars on the street when they landed in Paris when James Hemings is driving the carriage and he's there with uh, Martha, his daughter Patsy, called Patsy at that time as a young woman. 
beggars are, you know, clamoring and asking for money, food, all kinds of things. He'd never seen things like that in the United States. And so the point is he gets there after all of the, it's like one of those things when you, you go abroad, all the things that bother you about your home don't bother you as much. Mm-hmm. You can say, yeah, you know, it's pretty bad, but at least we don't do that. Right. And um, that really kind of took over him, took him over. So he's upset with, he said, the problem is the form of government. The form of, the French form of government was problematic, that it brought people to this point. So he was all for something happening. And he knew that, or and as he believed in the United States, that the people should be in control of society, and this was exactly the opposite. France at this time obviously had a king. Uh, They had something called a parliament, but that was not parliament in the English sense of a representative government. Mm -hmm. It was more like a court, and they reviewed laws for the king, but there was no no legislative body. There was no way for ordinary people to actually have their say. And so he's looking at this society, and he began to have a deeper appreciation for the United States, for America, for Virginia, his home, at that, his country, as he would have called it. And so he combines this sense of concern about what's going on in France, shock with, at the lower echelons, with the love of the high culture, and says, and he's sort of supportive when the revolution happens. And he actually thinks that things are going to proceed along the lines of the American Revolution. They are following us. This is the age of revolution. He doesn't use that phrase, but but there's this sense that there's something, you know, Jefferson was was a radical for his time. I mean, it's sort of interesting for people to think of him today as a conservative because we think of him through the prism of race Mm -hmm. and those things. But the economic side of him, and he's... He's writing back to Madison, and he's saying, you know, taxes, people below a certain point shouldn't have to pay taxes, and taxes should be apportioned according to people's wealth, how much money they have. I mean, you know, he's, and you should take things over. I mean, it's almost a socialistic understanding of, of the way society should be, should be constituted, but he's there in the midst of extreme poverty, and so that's his response so he's all for the revolution and thinks it's going to proceed well. And, of course, as you know, Burke and other people said, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. And, and also I think he was very excited at the fact that the United States was no longer the only yeah. republic, mm-hmm. that people couldn't dismiss it as an mm-hmm. anomaly. Mm-hmm. I know that he, he, he and Madison both felt now we have a sister revolution. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this was... This was a. Uh, this is a man of the Enlightenment, and who thought against all evidence in some ways—not all <laughs> evidence, but some evidence—that things were going to get better and better. I mean, he really believed that mm-hmm. that that this because he had sort of a sort of likened everyday life and politics to science, and so this concept, this notion of scientific advancement. Things would get better. We would discover new things. We would have new inventions. Society would progress. And he thought that that would happen in terms of politics as well. So, as you're right. studied entropy. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and so you're right. I mean, he sees, okay, this is the beginning of a wave that's going to sweep the world. And we will have republics. We will get rid of monarchy, which he absolutely hated. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was the impact of 
both his support for France, Madison's support for France, and how did this figure in the very, very divisive politics of the 1790s? Well, he gets back from France, and there's a constitution. He's been writing to, I mean, contrary to the musical, what did, what did I miss? Uh, <laughs> Hamilton, I mean, obviously he's talking to James Madison about what's going on and offering his opinion about what's going on with the constitution and why they need a bill of rights and all those kinds of things. So he gets back, and he's coming back from France. He was supposed to come back from France on a leave of absence. He wanted to take his daughters home. Now, there are a couple of things. He was interested in trying to deal with his financial state. But what I really think it was, and you can see it in his letters, is a sort of growing panic about his eldest daughter, mm-hmm. Patsy, who is 17 and 18, is of marriageable age at that point. She's going out to balls. She's meeting young men. Mm-hmm. She actually... Um, had a crush on, had some sort of interest in his secretary, William Short, Mm. who apparently proposed to her uh, Mm. when they were there. And Short was a Jefferson distant kinsman who came to France with him, or came over a little bit after he did, to serve as his secretary. So he's, I've got to get my daughter. He'll, he'll be writing a letter to somebody and he'll talk about a number of things, but then he says, you know, but I want to get my daughter back home. So I think he's panicked about that. So he was going to come back to Virginia, drop Martha, uh, Mariah, and Sally Hemings off at uh, his sister-in-law's home, their, their aunt's house, and Sally Hemings' half-sister's uh, house. This is all convoluted family history here. Uh, and come back to France. But George Washington asks him to be in the cabinet. cabinet. And it's interesting, we were talking about Gouverneur Morris earlier. Gouverneur Morris, his time in France overlapped with Jefferson, writes and says, he's never going to come back. Mm -hmm. He's not going to come back because he's too close to his daughters to go and leave them. He will never be without the company of his daughters. And so he correctly predicts that, and he didn't come back. So he comes back and... At first, things are going okay until Hamilton has his reports on the bank and assumption and all. He begins to see that he has a different, people have a different understanding about what the revolution meant. And that, it makes perfect sense that that would happen. You think of these people who are involved in this enterprise, the revolution, and now they have a government it makes sense that they might have different ideas about how to do that. And so they began to fight about what the, the government actually meant, what it meant, what the revolution actually meant. The French Revolution, or he's enthusiastic about it, Washington and others, people start out, even, they start out enthusiastic about it, but then began to see that things were going off the rails. And certainly when they killed the king. Mm-hmm. That was a big deal. Um, Jefferson was much more even-handed about that. But the assassination of of the aristocrats, Mm -hmm. who were, after all, the purveyors of the culture he admired, Mm -hmm. you would have thought that would have uh, disturbed him. You have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. (laughs) No, I I think that's something flippant. But I think... He said, you know, lots of people have died. Lots of poor people have died 
And nobody cares about that. Lots of poor people have starved to death. Nobody sees that as an issue. But you kill someone who is famous. You kill somebody who has power. And, all, and he says this about the king, you know, Louis Capet. You know, why, you know, why do people get much more excited? You know, his death, why is his death so much more horrible than that of all the other people who have died mm-hmm. um, from neglect and revolution? So Jefferson was actually a revolutionary, and that's a tough thing. It's a tough thing. Now, as it's true, some of his friends are being killed. My, my friend of mine, Jeff Looney, who is the head of the... Have, do you know Jeff at all? He's, he's the, um, the editor of the Jefferson Papers, the retirement series. That's yeah, the part that's yeah, being yeah. edited down in, in, um, at uh, Monticello. And he and I have a project um, where we are collecting... We're calling it the Excitable Jefferson. And we're collecting <laughs> Jefferson's, all of his most hyperbolic statements. And, one of, and the number one has to be the Adam and Eve letter. When William Short has written to him and told, and he's offered some sort of mildly critical things, not mildly, but, you know, some charges against the, the revolution is going off the rails, people are getting killed. And Jefferson says, basically, you know, I, he would rather have seen the, the earth desolated if there would be, you know, a, but if there were an Adam and Eve left and they were free. You know, that this cause was so important to him. So don't talk to me about the people who are getting killed because this is an important thing. The French Revolution is an important thing. And if Adam and Eve were left and they were free, that would be better than what they had before. And so, of course, he didn't really mean that. <laughs> right. you, know, you mean kill Martha and Patsy yeah. and right. everybody. Right. And, you know, so, but it's that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of hyperbole right. but th- that shows that he really, but he really seriously believed that. And so... Yeah, it's a tough thing. He goes through the 1790s. He eventually comes around and understands that, well, what it brings is Napoleon, whom he absolutely detested. I was going to ask you about that. He absolutely detested uh, that this was a betrayal of the revolution. But he had, and we can ask why, and I ask why a lot of times, he had faith in people. He He actually thought that people were essentially good and you kind of you got to raise an eyebrow. <laughs> no, I think he did. That people were essentially good, and that they were trained to be bad. That society and culture and uh, those kinds of things influence people, and that's why you needed education. And with edu- that's why you wanted a public education system that you could, in fact, train people to be enlightened. Mm-hmm. You know, exposed to the right kind of uh, books, exposed to the right kind of music, and so forth, that people would do the right thing. Now, that didn't turn out to be the case. <laughs> uh, and his beloved revolution, the, the France that he loved, that he never got to see again. And he said late in life that if there was any other place that he would live besides Monticello, it would be Paris. Um, that world disappeared for a time. One thing he should have liked about Napoleon is Napoleon destroyed the salons run by women. Mm-hmm. Napoleon did not tolerate mm-hmm. women playing any kind of political role and introduced that civil service mm-hmm. to get rid of women's patronage. So yeah, they yeah. might have been able to agree Go on, on that. that particular <laughs> one. And he comes back from France and he says, the sexes have changed places uh, in France. Uh, and, you know, again, exaggerating. I mean, women had influence, but women have influence the way we have influence, which is not 
really. <laughs> uh, you know, in, in those kinds of, the sort of soft power kind of right. thing, as long as right. people let it go. Um, let, let the, as far as people would let that. Um, yeah, so it, that they might have, but, but by and large, he just thought that that was an incredible betrayal. It, it was another emperor, it was another king, mm-hmm. and that's what he mm-hmm. really, really hated. So, you know, his, you know, France, as I said, affected his political views, it affected his social views, it affected his views about slavery, uh, but, and he never lost his love for it, and it took him a while to admit that the hopes that he had for the revolution were not to be realized. In domestic politics, I mean, one of my favorite characters is Edmund Genet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jefferson really tried. I mean, the demands of France in the 1790s were outrageous. They really wanted to colonize mm-hmm. the United States. But Genet, he was extremely patient with and tried to school him. It just didn't work. (laughs) And he finally writes this furious, furious letter Mm -hmm. to Genet telling him, I wash my hands of you, you don't understand us, and he never mailed it. Yeah. I thought that was so telling that being angry did not... Be angry, count to ten. Yeah. (laughs) And don't. I mean, there are a few times when he lets it go against Marshall. Yeah, John Marshall. He 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 and Marshall were cousins, but really did not like each other. Right, <laughs> very very right. much. So no, he was a very controlled person. Uh, and but this an 18th century kind of thing. This notion of the 18th century gentleman that you don't let yourself, you don't let passion. There was a distrust of passion, even though he was a very passionate person. There's a sense of Jefferson as this kind of cold, cerebral individual. No. There's a, a lot going on under there all the time. And it, I think he, that was one of the things that he did like about Paris because he saw them as a passionate people. And it's interesting mm-hmm. that he would mention that and have the image that he has as someone who's somewhat austere and cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you think France changed his view, if at all, mm-hmm. about slavery? Well, it's interesting. He goes through a lot of different phases there, or at least a couple of different phases. He was known in France by his friends, the philosophs and the people, you know, Lafayette and the people with whom he associated as anti-slavery because of what, you know, he'd written in notes in the state of Virginia. He'd shared that with them and that his views about that were well known. But when he gets to France and he sees this tremendous poverty and you know, the peasants, he begins to think, well, slavery is bad, but their physical condition is not as bad as people here. Now, we can dispute that, mm-hmm. as you say, but he, began, but he really did begin to see that there's enough wretchedness here. We don't see that kind of thing in the United States. And, of course, he's thinking about Monticello, uh, right. which might have been a different place in some ways. Um, we can talk about that later. But he began to see a sort of being a less immediate, slavery is a less immediate problem, that it was something that could be solved, but until it was solved, he should adopt a policy of what we would call, um, Krista Darkside, uh, who's a young historian, has written about Jefferson and amelioration. The situation could be ameliorated. He goes from a person who's saying we should have emancipation, Slavery is wrong to a person who says you can make slavery better. 
And once you start making slavery kinder and gentler, <laughs> slavery, <laughs> you're lost because you think you can do it the right way. At one point, he writes a letter saying that he plans to bring Germans to Monticello, German immigrants to Monticello to mix them with enslaved people and have them work, you know, work the farms and eventually be freed and that they would be something like, you know, uh, not peasants, but they would be, he does actually use the term citizens, that they could grow to be good citizens. And that's his plan. He has a plan for... How many Germans signed up? <laughs> no, this is just a plan. No, this, is, this was his idea uh, because Germans are supposed to be, you know, hardworking hard, hard and sturdy and that they would, you know, work alongside African-Americans and they would all grow up to be good citizens. And so he writes this to William Drayton while he's in, um, in Paris. And he has a plan about, well, fig trees... Fig trees would be good to plant because <laughs> women could pick figs. Fig trees are not, the labor is not as onerous. What as drug being in the was field. he on what when, drug he wrote, he when he wrote these? <laughs> <laughs> Wine. Um, no, so, but he's thinking about, so this is the amelioration. It's like, what, what can I do right. to, to relieve the lot of this tender part of our species is the way he, the sort of convoluted way of saying women. Uh, what can you do to make their lot easier? And fig trees would be something. So he's, you know, there are all these kind of ideas that he has, the Germans, the fig trees, and whatever, but all of it turns on this idea that while slavery exists, there are ways to make it a better system than it was before. He also, because he has in his household James Hemings and Sally Hemings, um, two enslaved people who are who were the half-sisters of his wife and were part of a family with whom he had lots of connections, he begins to see slavery. We actually see slavery through his relationship with them, mm-hmm. which is a very different right, kind of, of thing. So I'm a, he's a slave owner, but he is a slave owner to James and Sally. Mm-hmm. And this is how I treat James and Sally. We, he pays them wages while he's there because they have an opportunity to petition for freedom while they're there. And he knows that. And he writes to someone saying, you know, if you, someone who's asking him about the status of slaves. And he said, well, you know, the law is so on their side that the only thing you can do is hope that they don't find out because you have no recourse. (laughs) We'll have no recourse if they find out the, the law is on their side. So he begins to pay them wages while they're there. So he's acting, France allowed him to act as a slave owner in a very kind of unrealistic way. Right. To sort of hide the basic reality of what all of this was. And so, again, I can be a good slave owner, which is, as I said, is the road to to hell. He also, this image of the French people Mm -hmm. suffering so in poverty, he could have come to New York or Boston and seen... Poverty there, seeing poor women begging on the streets yeah, who were yeah. widows. Mm-hmm. So he has Monticello being his point of reference yeah, always. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Is, uh, gives him a view of, you know, it's like living on the Upper West Side and thinking the whole country is liberal. So I, Yeah, Mondale is going to win, Right, isn't it? you know, and, and everybody <laughs> eats bagels. No. I, the, so, I, I mean... 
I never realized how extensive that world that he created at Monticello shaped his understanding of America, of slavery, mm-hmm. of France. Of the world, of what was possible in the world. And it was not, not to say that Monticello is not a paradise. I mean, people got whipped at Monticello. Mm-hmm. Um, not everybody was members of the Hemings family. That's not, that wasn't realistic. But it did, how he did things was how he thought other people could do it. And if everybody would just be like me, this would be great, and eventually this system would go away. Now, it would go away, and African Americans would have to go away too because the plan was emancipation and expatriation. That was the quote-unquote liberal view at the time. Madison, Monroe, Marshall... All people, all of the founding generation. We don't want, know what Washington thought about this because Washington. Um, I don't know Washington. I don't know as much about Washington, but from what I gather from the things that I've read, and he was, he's not talking philosophy. Right. You know, he's not thinking, you know, long term or writing his musings about what's going to happen way, mm-hmm. way, way off in the future, mm-hmm. other than you know, in, in any serious, sustained kind of way. But the idea was that you could not have. They couldn't conceive of a multiracial society. Right. And so um, the idea, the plan was to educate African Americans up till women up until 18 and men up until 21. Then they would be expatriated first, maybe to the West, but then they thought, no, not to the West, that's for white people now. And, or maybe San Domingue, which becomes Haiti, or maybe back to Africa. Once they did that, they could have their own country. All men are created equal, but they would meet as equal countries in their own separate nations because there could not be a conflict-free multiracial society. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, those were his views. So when he's in France, as I said, that is something that the notion of that happening sort of comes from something that he thinks that might be immediate to something that is much more distant in the future. But in the meantime, amelioration. In the meantime, makes new and improved slavery, which, you know, is not, <laughs> not, doesn't work. And I'm sure now we want to hear the gossip. Uh, what's going on with Sally in France? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> Sally Hemings came over with Jefferson's younger daughter. Mm-hmm. He left his two youngest daughters with his sister-in-law, Elizabeth Epps. When he went to France, he thought that they were too young to go with him, and he takes his oldest daughter. One of his daughters dies while he's there, while he's in France, and he really wants the other one with him. So he asks to have her, she's called Polly, her name is Mary, this is very confusing. She's married. <coughs> she's in France. She likes to call herself Mariah, but she's also called Polly. <laughs> uh, so, uh, oh, we lived through Lady Bird. So we I know, know no, this we don't happen. know what this means. We know what this means. So instead of, and he says, send her over with a careful Negro woman such as Isabel. And Isabel Hearn was at the time about twenty-eight years old, and. Jefferson was thinking that she would be a suitable person, but instead Elizabeth Epps, who is also Sally Hemings' (laughs) half-sister, sends her with Polly, 
and they go to London, and they're in the home of Abigail and John Adams for some time. Abigail doesn't, is not very impressed with Sally Hemings. Um, she says that she's nothing but a child herself. She's kind of shocked that this young person who's 14 at this time has been sent over to be the nursemaid of a nine-year-old because right. there's not that much difference. Um, she, she thinks Sally Hemings is 16, which is interesting because I think a 14-year-old and the 16-year-old, and for females, could, a lot could happen in those years. And so she thinks she's older than she actually is, which I think may account for why she was saying that she seemed childish, more than a, nothing mm. more than a child herself, but in any event. So she sends, Jefferson sends Adrian Petit, his um, major domo at the, uh, major hotel at the Hotel Melangiac, to pick them up, and Abigail Adams is furious about this, because he said, you should have come yourself. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you come to pick up your daughter? But he sends the servant and Sally Hemings comes to France, comes to Paris, the Hotel Alangiac, to be with her brother, James, who has been trained to be a chef and is still in training to be a chef. We don't really know what her job, I mean, she was not supposed to be there, right? right? She wasn't, so there was nothing. He had a staff of servants. I mean, there's always stuff to, to be done around the house. Um, she was the nursemaid to Mariah, to Polly, as we said. We don't know where she lived. Cinder Stanton and I go back and forth on this. Cinder, mm-hmm. I think, thinks she might have been at the boarding school where um, Jefferson's daughters went, uh, went to school. I think she was more likely at the Hotel Alangiac because she is listed along being paid with all the other staff there, mm-hmm. and there's no record of him paying room or board for her at the school, which he would have had to do. But we don't know what she's doing there. At some point... However, Madison Hemings, her, her son, says that she became pregnant by Jefferson. At 14? No. Um, her baby's born when she, at 16. Six babies when she's, uh, her baby's born when she's 17. Um, so the only evidence, the, the first evidence that we have of any kind of sexual contact is that she has a baby when she's 17. So we don't know when this started. We don't know what the, you know, what the story is with that. He wants to get, as I mentioned before, Martha back home. And obviously, he's going to be taking all of the girls back home. And she doesn't want to go. Nobody wanted to go. James, I mean, no one wanted to go. William Short didn't want to go back home. Martha didn't want to go back home. She talked about renting rooms at the, at the uh, Abbey instead of going back home. It's like he is the only person. The young people wanted to stay there. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The young people wanted to stay there. Martha, I mean, she had her formative years there. She'd spent five from the time she was 12 to 17. I mean, that's, just think of when you're 12 to 17, what those years mean to you. And she had those years in Paris, and she did not want to go home. So he promises, Sally Hemings doesn't want to go home either. <laughs> so he promises her that if she comes back, she would have extraordinary privileges. She would have a good life at Monticello, and her children would be freed at 21 because if she had children in Paris, they would be free. If she had children in Virginia, where you followed the status of your mother, they would be enslaved. So where was she when she had her first child? She was in Virginia. In Virginia. She was in Virginia Mm -hmm. uh, because she decides to go home with him. And that's always been the question that, from the time I wrote my first book that I've wondered about and people have asked me about, you know, why would she come back home? 
with him. If you have a chance to be free. Her brother, um, when Jefferson begins, during the time that Jefferson is talking about going back home, hired a tutor to teach him teach himself French. He'd learned French, but he wanted to know formal French. And so that might be an indication that he's thinking about staying, staying there. He, when he's freed later on, he actually goes back to Europe. Um, so, you know, she decides to come home with him. And I, it didn't make sense to me when I was writing my first book, but it made more sense when I wrote The Hemings is a Monticello when I thought about the family, mm-hmm. you know, the dilemma that enslaved people mm-hmm. felt. Do you take your freedom or do you stay with your family? And women, even then, believe it or not, were socialized to think about family. Mm-hmm. And her mother was there, her sisters were at home, and she's going to have a baby. Mm-hmm. So she could have been with her brother in France, but that might have been harder than being going back home and being with your with and your family. her family would benefit from her special status. Yeah, so it would yeah. Be... I mean, they would, but they were already because you know Martha's. I mean, Sally Hemings had she had numerous siblings, but the Hemings Whale siblings were there were six of them, and um, they were all treated very differently than the rest of mm-hmm. members, you know, members of the enslaved community there. But, yeah, uh, it, was, it would make sense for her to go back home, given her connections. And you wonder, why did she believe him? And, you know, that's the, the talk. Why did she trust him? Why would you yeah. trust that he was going to do what he said he was going to do? And, again, writing on the book, I realized that he had treated, if you try to put yourself not, not thinking about the way I would think about it, but thinking about it in the way of a person who knew him, which I don't. But I mean, actually, you know, I mean, you know, I don't know. We, know, we study these people. We really don't know. If somebody who actually knew him, she had seen how he treated her brothers. I mean, some, they were not, well, he eventually frees them. But before then, they are running around Virginia on their own, hiring their own time, keeping their own money, which was, not, which was against the law. For some reason, she trusted him. And Madison Hemings says in his recollections that she implicitly relied on his promises. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough thing for modern people to hear and to think about. It's a tough thing for me to think about. But she did. And she came back home, and he did what he said he was going to do. But there was no guarantee that that was going to happen because once she comes back to Virginia, she's totally under his control. Mm-hmm. There is no option for, in France, you petition for freedom. And every petition that was made was granted in the 18th century. It was sort of like a pro forma, it was an, automa- an automatic thing that mm-hmm. happened. Didn't he have a relationship with another woman or a flirtation mm-hmm. with another woman? Probably a flirtation. Uh, Mariah Causeway, who mm-hmm. was... Uh, of English extraction, but grew up in Italy. Again, another thing, he comes all the way to France. He doesn't have an affair with a French woman. <laughs> he has an affair with an English woman who lives and uh, speaks Italian. Um, don't know really what that was. He was definitely smitten with her, and he writes this famous letter, My Head and My Heart, which mm-hmm. I think is a, basically a kiss-off letter. Uh, it's, everybody <laughs> see it as this great love letter, but he's basically saying, who wants to hear... You know, I love you, but I have to think about this. 
Uh, that's essentially what the letter is. On one hand, on the other hand, on one hand, on the other hand. and We call that afraid to commit. Afraid to commit <laughs> and goodbye. And uh, he never, you know, it's, it's strange what's going on with that. I think, I think people, there's no question that he may have been, he was infatuated with her, but people have posited that she was like the love of his life and all of this. But no, I mean, he writes to, she writes to him and he lets, months go by before he writes back. In the meantime, he's written to Madison five times. He's written to other people. So I just think he he was, after having gone through what he went through with his wife's death, yeah. this was a first awakening of being back in the game. You know, he's back in the game. This attractive young woman is interested in him, a married woman, mm-hmm. um, and safe <laughs> in that sense. Safe and unsafe, but safe in France. He wouldn't have been safe in Virginia because he would have been called out and shot. But in France, they did that kind of thing. And, and Gouverneur Morris. And Gouverneur Morris did that kind of thing, <laughs> yes. too. Uh, and so I'm trying to... I, I hate to sound like one of these uh, gossip shows on TV, but I'm trying... He, is she before or after he takes up with Sally? I mean, I'm She's before. To think about his. She's before. And Fawn Brody, who wrote uh, the first biography of Jefferson that talks about Sally Hemings, posited that it's Sally Hemings's arrival that splits them apart, because he starts talking about Amazons and angels. Mm. And Amazons, the women of America who take care of their men and their children, are angels compared to these Amazons in France who are running around at the salons and interfering Mm -hmm. in politics and Mm -hmm. being in the streets. So, yeah, Sally Hemings comes after Mariah Cosway. And there is, she, you can chart a sort of gradual dissolution of the you know, the letters and the spacing and all of it. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I just, I personally don't know how into Mariah he actually was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I want to go back a little bit to Napoleon. Mm-hmm. He never meets Napoleon, no. does he? No. Uh, that would have been interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he would have towered, you know, over, towered him. over him. Uh, Although apparently Napoleon wasn't really that short. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. For that age. Oh, you're destroying all this. I know. Uh, how did it influence Jefferson's policy when he was president mm-hmm. toward France once Napoleon was holding the reins of power in France? Mm-hmm. Well, wariness, very happy about the purchase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Louisiana Purchase. I mean, Napoleon gave him a courtesy of Saint-Domingue, courtesy of the enslaved people at Saint-Domingue who, who held up the French mm-hmm. and uh, uh, made uh, that less. He was trying to reintroduce slavery there, and they fought that off and made Louisiana and uh, those places less valuable to him. Uh, that was the biggest favor that Napoleon did did for him, obviously, mm-hmm. was to, to help him double the size of the United States of America. But he railed against Napoleon. I don't think, I don't recall him ever, it, well, he didn't regret the French Revolution. Right. Never regretted that, but he certainly regretted the rise of Napoleon. Mm-hmm. And in in 
I also want to go back to the 1790s. His, his position on France is one of the central, I mean, it seems to me two things lead to the Jefferson-Madison party. One mm-hmm. is the recognition that the trajectory of American economy under Hamilton mm-hmm. is not going to be favorable to Virginia, mm-hmm. not going to be favorable to the South. But also this argument over whether one ought to align oneself with England or with France mm-hmm. seems to me to be run through that entire era. Yeah, well, it's tough because he hated England. Yes. Just hated England. Yes. And, you know, even though he was of English extraction, he just thought that what did we fight a revolution for if we were going to become in the orbit of Great Britain, if we're going to be like Great Britain? And he saw... In every revolution, you have counter-revolutionaries. And he actually thought that Hamilton and the people who wanted a more British system were forms of Mm counter-revolutionaries. And that the fervor that he brought to uh, that now seems a little crazy. He's talking about Mm -hmm. monocrats and so forth. But Hamilton did want the president to serve for life. He did want a Senate that served for life. Well, he said that at the convention. Yeah, yeah. I don't think... I mean, I mean you can't hold him to that for the rest of his life. Well, but I mean, that's, I'm, just, I'm just saying that this is what shaped his view mm-hmm. of Hamilton. When he comes back and hears this, that's what he's thinking about monocrats. That's, no, yeah, I mean, well, Ham, I mean, we don't know. Hamilton's life was cut short, and we don't really know, what, you know what, what he would have done and you know, what he would have thought about these things. But this is, this is shaping Jefferson's views, mm-hmm. that you would even talk about that or make of the British Constitution is the best constitution that's ever existed. Uh, These kinds of things just drove him to distraction because he sees someone who is cozying up to, he thinks, the the country that he hated. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit extreme in a way. It's a bit extreme. Yes. But on the other hand, you can... This was very fragile, as you know. I mean, we know that this is going to work, but you think about having done something momentous, broken away from an empire, defeated a monarchy, started a republic. This is, these are just a few years out. They can't be sure this is going to work. Right. And so all of these fears, all of these, you know, they loom large for him in ways that they don't for us because we know that it's all going to work. And this is all fragile to him. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. Well. For most of the time, we thought that it was going yes. to work, and it's going to work. But it has to work. Um, but he didn't know that. This is so early on, and there, everything is still shaking itself out. So he's he's more. I mean, Hamilton was a patriot. Hamilton, of course, wanted the you know the United and was States. also insecure about the survival of America and maybe one of the reasons why he wanted the stability of a president for life and a a Senate for life. He didn't. Mm -hmm. And he didn't trust. I mean, they had different understandings about the people, you know, and what would happen with the people. Democracy, as you know, was sort of a dirty word at the Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And it equated with mob rule. Mm -hmm. And it was a Democratic Republican Party that there was a a check on things. And there was just a different understanding about how far there should be a check. Now, politically, Jefferson and Madison won. 
they won that argument mm-hmm. in, the, in the revolution of 1800, as Jefferson called it. But he, he was never secure, even as an elderly man, when we get to the Missouri crisis, he's still thinking in the Federalist Party, you know, he threatened to, he promised to sink the Federalist Party into to the abyss, which he, mm-hmm. which he did. Uh, but he's still thinking in 1819, 1820, that, oh, they're not really interested in slaves. They're not interested in, you know, that issue. They're just, this is the old Federal Party trying to reassert its ascendancy. So he keeps fighting monarch, you know, like people fight communists. They mm-hmm. fight the war that was whatever mm-hmm. instead of looking at today. He was still thinking that they were trying to, the moneyed interest. He was interested in, uh, were concerned about, Banks concerned about the power of new forms of financial instruments. He thought that these are things people can't understand. Um, and he wouldn't have said 1%, but <laughs> those people are going to control things, and this will interfere with democracy. I, I, uh, I take issue always. I think it's that it would interfere with the 1% of Virginia and South Carolina. I mean, this is really a regional battle on top of everything else Mm -hmm. between, I mean, look at Madison, who's an ardent nationalist Mm -hmm. at the convention and in 1789. And as soon as Hamilton's Proposals come out, and they see that this is an economic trajectory toward trade and commerce. That's when the opposition really takes hold. Mm -hmm. And it ends, you know, in the Civil War. So Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that that Jefferson's hostility comes down to some extent. He certainly didn't object to some people being richer than others given where he was from. I think, yeah, I think Jefferson thought that his class is going to go. I think really? He, yeah, I think he, the idea was to have America would be a place of farmers. He never used the word yeoman farmers, but he thought his class would go because he thought slavery was going to go. And it would be a nation of family farmers. He had extreme New England envy. He had extreme envy of places like Pennsylvania mm-hmm. with family farms. Jefferson, there's the economic part of it, but Jefferson was really thought that politics were going to solve things. Mm -hmm. So I do think he was thinking that politically, that if the people controlled, if people were in control, the moneyed interest, or however he describes these things, would be would would be put in check as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, he knew that there would be people who would be richer than others, but I don't think that. I think he thought the future was in ordinary people, not in people mm-hmm. like himself. Mm-hmm. That's, <clears throat> that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, I, this is always such an unfair question, okay. and I always answer it with, I don't know, no. they're dead. <laughs> but, I don't know, they're dead. But if Jefferson were assessing the trajectory of America till today, I'm not asking you, would he be a Democrat or a Republican? But what do you think he would consider his lasting achievements? That is, what would he he think had endured of Jeffersonianism? Optimism and faith in equality, belief in equality, the Declaration, would be a lasting legacy. Um, I think uh, he would... Yeah, uh, optimism, 
faith in the words of the Declaration of Independence would be his lasting legacy. I mean, you could see it in his tombstone. Those are the things yes. that interested him. The University of Virginia, religious freedom, separation of church and state. I think he would be very, very impressed with the extent to which we have managed so far to keep that separation or to people, people have at least the understanding that that is the way it should be as an ideal. Uh, and faith in, in science and reason. So, yeah, I, I think he would, uh, Jeffersonian optimism would be what he would hope that he sort of bequeathed to, to us. I will try to be more optimistic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I promise. I promise, I promise Tom, I will try to be. Thank you, Annette. We have a pile of questions from the audience. Oh, other than France, what countries did the Young Republic have diplomatic relations with? When? <laughs> I, I suppose the Morocco, Young Republic. I think, the, I think the first may have been Morocco, the, the first ones that we had. I don't know all of the rest of them. And France and Spain. Spain. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, Holland, most of Europe. Most of Europe. Right. How did Jefferson's time in France affect his decisions as president? Well, that's one of the things we've we've talked about, I think. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Anything further you want to say about that, his stay in France? No. Did he serve good wine when he when he had steak dinners? Yeah, and he he bought it himself too. Yes, basically helped bankrupt himself doing the dinners. Yes, Uh, he politicked by uh, dinner party, and he ordered tremendous amounts of wine and good wine and served it. And John Quincy Adams, Louisa mentions that, and um, he ends up sort of in the red when he leaves. Right, right. I try to keep control of that myself. Did Jefferson stay in France influence his views on separation of church and state? That's an interesting question. Yes. I mean, the Catholic church, uh, the the influence of the church of priests and priestcraft. And when he says that, he doesn't just mean Catholics. He means all individuals, people who sort of take it upon themselves to instruct people about religion and sort of have a uh, holding the reins on all of that. It confirmed, the power of the church confirmed his belief in the need of a revolution. Mm-hmm. Why, oh, why is Thomas Jefferson still such a venerated individual when there is clear historical evidence of how poorly he treated others, including the children he had with Sally Hemings? Hmm. <laughs> Well, because of his other accomplishments, because of the Declaration of Independence, he was a president, he founded a great university, he set the grid for the United States, the land that we're set, you know, that we're on. He gave, uh, well, sold the books that became the basis of the Library of Congress. He gave us our national creed. How poorly he treated the children of Sally Hemings, I don't know that he treated them he didn't treat them like he treated white children, but that's not, that was not the world that he lived in. Mm-hmm. That would not have happened. The children that he had with Sally Hemings were freed. They lived with their parents, lived at their, his, their mother uh, until they were 21, and they left. 
well, actually, Eston and Madison take their mother and live in Charlottesville with her until she, until she dies, and then they, they go on. Um, they were not treated like other... They were not treated like white people, but they were not treated like enslaved people either. Mm-hmm. So I don't... I mean, the, the fact that he... There are lots of... The situation where you have... I'm not excusing this. When people have two sets of kids legitimate children and illegitimate children in that day, it would have been a rare thing for them to have treated the illegitimate children, white illegitimate children, exactly like mm-hmm. their legitimate kids. And that's, yeah, the whole thing is unfathomable, but there are a lot of, if we're going to open up people's lives, there are lots of ways, lots of things, lots of ways that people could fall short um, the more you know about people, and the, no, the more you go into their family yeah. and the kinds yeah. of things that they're doing, it's hard for anybody who's admired to st- withstand scrutiny of that. So hero worship is never the thing to do, but it's possible to admire people's accomplishments and at the same time recognize that they are flawed. It's also, I find it extremely hard with students always to explain that people in the past have a different understanding of the world than they have mm-hmm. at that very moment in the classroom. Mm-hmm. The moral judgments, and I always fall back on the statement, historians don't judge good and bad. We ask, why did something happen and what was the context in which it happened? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, these people are dead. They don't care whether we liked them or didn't like them. I mean, pure and simple. Well, he tried <laughs> with a legacy. He tried to shape his legacy. No, I mean, I, I think that's true. We don't want it, but we, do, we inevitably say that some things are good and some things are bad, you know, that you wish he, were, he had said, oh, I'm going to free all of my slaves and do this. Or you wish that he had treated the children with Sally Hemings exactly like Martha and Patsy, mm-hmm. but he didn't, and that's a failure. They were not, as he said, like other enslaved children on the plantation. And Madison Hemming said that. He said, we were happy growing up because we knew we were not going to be slaves all our lives. And we just, you know, we were always, we were with our mother, and so that's not a satisfactory answer, but you have to... You have to be able to accept people's accomplishments and 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 accept their failures because it's usually it's either the person is a god or the person is the devil, mm-hmm. and that's not for historians. That's definitely not the way to not the way to go. I think the only flawless human being in terms of their family was me. <laughs> you did and everything I want my right. Children to know that they did everything right. <laughs> Annette and I were talking earlier, and I said, one of the joys of grandchildren is they will not tell their therapist that it was all your fault. (laughs) Only mothers. Only mothers, right. Uh, Which revolutionary faction in the French Revolution did Jefferson sympathize with most? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's a tough Uh, one. They they said he he sympathized with the the Jacobins. But no, he, but he, uh, he, he was a moderate. I mean, he thought that when he was working with Lafayette, mm-hmm. he thought that they were going to have the Declaration of Rights and that it would proceed in a sort of moderate fashion. 
And but he sounds like a Jacobite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you come? Oh, can you comment on Jefferson's relationship with Gouverneur Morris? <laughs> well, Gouverneur Morris thought. I get the impression from the readings that he thought that Jefferson was kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was. He too was much more into French society. Jefferson had this wonderful house. But he didn't go out as much. He did go to salons, but he, Morris mentioned how he preferred to be at home with his daughters and, you know, just have people come there instead of going out and doing various mm-hmm. things. So they were, he, had, he had cordial relations with them, but I get the impression from reading him about Jefferson in Paris that he thought that he was a little, something of an oddball. Mm-hmm. Gouverneur Morris, Paris was made for Gouverneur Morris. Mm-hmm. I mean, that... How did Jefferson react to being called a coward when he escaped from British capture during the Revolutionary War? Oh, he, it, this is something that he, as an elderly man, he was still trying to sure. vindicate himself. But I've never understood that. The idea that he would be up at Monticello and Tarleton's troops are coming up and he's there by himself. What's he supposed to do? No, let the governor be captured. And, and the Congress fled Philadelphia. Yeah, no, everybody's leaving. Split no, I mean, when, Patrick when Henry, all these people are fleeing too, but he's the governor. The governor cannot be captured and ransomed. You can't do that. And was he supposed to stand there and by himself and fight off? Um, um, but he escaped. And I guess in later years, you know, um, Teddy Roosevelt hated Jefferson, thought that he was a coward because of that. So what, and I would have pulled out my, you know, pistol and I would have shot. You right. Know, so. I, we've heard that recently. Yeah, you've too. heard that. No. Oh, oh, gosh, I didn't mean that. <laughs> uh, that's what I would have done. So, no, it, because it, this, is, this is like a stain on masculinity. You know, you're saying you're a coward and stuff like that. He didn't fight in the war it, either. It's interesting, too, because... People acknowledge that Washington's strategy was run away, run away. Yeah. I mean, Washington said outright, as long as they can't capture my army, mm-hmm. they can't, the British can't say they won. They won. And he was perfectly willing yeah. to flee uh-huh. uh, to make sure that he that didn't He fights and happen. run away, lives a fight another day. But here it was, to me, simple prudence. You just get out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But there were people who didn't. There were always people, unlike Washington, there were always people who hated Jefferson. He was always a controversial figure. So if you're, when you do something like that, you give your enemies ammunition. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it, but it was painful. He's, you know, and on a, literally on his deathbed, and he's talking to, to, uh, to Henry Lee, and he's trying to explain himself. So this was something that really stuck mm-hmm. with him. Why do you think it's such a common misconception that America was founded as a Christian nation when a founder like Jefferson was so adamantly against religion in politics? Because Christianity, religion, was such an integral part of early America. I mean, historians don't... I mean, it tends to be much, a much more secular presentation and profession. Uh, Religion was important in early America. It's always been important. And so I think people take that to mean that it has some political salience 
in a way, but that was never right. their intention. It was a Christian culture. But yeah, not Christian a culture, Christian that's political yeah, exactly, structure. Exactly. Right. There's a difference between uh, you know the, the culture of the people who were here and, and started versus saying that this is a part of the government mm-hmm. and this is a part of the way people should should conduct politics. But why people say it today is for their own propaganda purposes, I would guess. Was there were there American financial interests in France during the French Revolution? Sure. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, trade. Yeah, trade was like the that. heart of it was heart of it. Right. And certainly we owed a great deal of money mm-hmm. to France. How has the notion of the U.S.'s role in international affairs changed since Thomas Jefferson was Secretary of State? And would you like to answer that standing on one foot? (laughs) A lot. (laughs) From a nation, it's interesting. He said that the the United States was the strongest nation in the world and the strongest government in the world because, again, he thought that he was talking about people mm-hmm. and that the people's faith in the government made it the strongest in the world. But now we actually are the last remaining superpower. Right. Maybe. Putin is working hard to, to uh, make that not true. Uh, and certainly Jefferson and Hamilton and uh, uh, Washington, all of the men of the time in, in the early republic, acknowledged that they were considered a developing country mm-hmm. uh, and available in the eyes of people like Chenet and, and the Girondists, uh, available to be yeah. recolonized or turned into a satellite mm-hmm. of a European, a more powerful European country. I don't think that, I don't think that there's anyone today who thinks that we could be turned into a satellite Actually, an actual satellite country. Can you comment on the relationship between Jefferson and John Adams as both adversaries and friends? Well, they loved each other Mm -hmm. starting out and had the good fortune of having it was a two, it was three of them. I mean, Abigail loved John, and um, Abigail loved Thomas Jefferson Mm -hmm. as well as John did. They were compatible in ways, but always, not, not combative, but could have a lively, lively conversations and lively connection. And politics just took them apart. Mm-hmm. When they get back to the 1790s, and as I was saying before, these are people who are compatriots, and they wanted, they had mobilized for a goal, uh, the revolution, and then... You form a government, and you have, you find out there are different understandings about how a government should be constituted. I will give John Adams credit that he was able to do that. I mean, his best friend until mm-hmm. 1774 was Jonathan Sewell, mm-hmm. a leading loyalist, loyalist yeah. who wrote articles defending the uh, king's uh, crown's yeah. policy. And he saw him again, much like the rapprochement between Adams and Jefferson years later, he sees uh, Sewell 
in 1780-something when he was ambassador to, 84, mm-hmm. to England. And Sewell comments, uh, he took my hand as if, you know, years had not gone by and he greeted me as mm-hmm. his old friend. So mm-hmm. I think... I, I think the capacity to overcome mm-hmm. political differences and to revive that sense of friendship you see also yeah. in in yeah. Adams and in yeah. Jefferson. And you know, and he defended the troops in the in the Boston Massacre. I mean, he it's sort of like a lawyer's the way lawyers conduct themselves. They can fight about a lot of things and then go have a drink afterwards. Um, he, he was good at that. Jefferson. I think in the 1790s may have gone too far for John and yes. Abigail yes. and supporting calendar and supporting yes. people and who... Because Jefferson had this weird thing that this is politics, but there's friendship on the other side. And we can do this politics things, but it, he went over into an arena with uh, the criticisms or the people who criticized right. John Adams that Bosch Abigail and yeah Adams that really, Abigail really could not really could not deal did such a number on John Adams yeah. poor John Adams yeah, yeah, yeah. attacked yeah. him in his appearance attacked him in his ideas atta- mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to yeah. to a great extent and and I think it it made it worse because you know the part that cemented them the fact that it was a couple and Jeff and Jefferson made it worse because Abigail could not. Abigail, Abigail could was not, not a forgiving soul. She was not. She, she was, was not, not she, a forgiving. She wrote soul. a letter to Jefferson that I don't. I don't. Haven't seen anybody other than anonymous things where people are writing to him as president, calling him out on all kinds of things. I've never seen anybody talk to him that way. Yeah, just really, really hammered him. Yeah, she uh, she did not forgive people who attacked her husband. What is your opinion about the removal of statues of Thomas Jefferson around the country? I didn't know. I thought it was largely Civil War figures that were being no, no. There are people who are saying that they should move his statue as well. I mean, I'm of two minds about it. I I think, and I've said this. I you know, Confederate statues, statues. The lawyer thing. Confederate statues can go as far as I'm concerned. There's not a reason for that. it depends on where they are. I don't think that statues to Jefferson were put up in support of his ideas about notes in the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. They're put up because of the Declaration. And as I said before, it's there are people who are... I mean, his contributions are such that he is someone I, who I think should remain generally in places... I was out in in, uh, St. Louis um, some years ago, and there was a controversy about his statue there. And I went to look at the statue, and it's kind of, like, cheesy. Um, (laughs) It doesn't really fit. I mean, they have his obelisk there. They have his original headstone there. And that that makes sense because of the gateway of the West and the purchase and all of this. You know, I think the one up in Columbia where, I guess it's in front of the building the journalism school, well, he is um, a proponent of freedom of the press, so that makes Mm -hmm. sense for him to be there. I don't know. You're not going to be able to find anybody, as I said, if you look at them. It's not going to have problems. And to me, you weigh the person's contributions against the flaws. So generally, I would say, yeah, the statue should stay up. On the other hand, he said the earth belongs to the living. Mm Mm-hmm. 
in a famous letter to Madison. And if every generation of people has to decide what is best for them, mm-hmm. you know, the dead hand of the past should not control. So he would probably, I'm sure he would like to have statues of himself remain, <laughs> but he would understand how a generation of people would say, you know, this is not, this is upsetting to people. This is not what we want. So as a collective, what the people wanted would be a collective judgment that, that, that he shouldn't stay. He would understand things moving along. So my personal preference is, I, this shouldn't be the Soviet Union or, you know, or, or places where, you know, or, or, chi- or China on the long march when people fall out of favor, they airbrush them out of the picture. No, I mean, that's not it. He should be there and we should talk about the good points and we should talk about the flaws and how his life, in many ways, mirrors the American dilemma about freedom and racism and slavery and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect, a point perfect of vehicle departure for that. For talking. Absolutely. I think they should do with all those Confederate statues what they did with the Stalinists in uh, Budapest. They created a little park. And oh, you that's amazing. And you, you can, can go, go and visit, and visit the statues visit of Stalin. the people. In the- go visit Uncle Joe. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> See, there are solutions to everything. If you can, we have one last question, and it's a a pretty interesting one. How did Jefferson's time in France have an influence on American culture? Did it? Well, yes, it did, because James Hemings, uh, um, (laughs) he brought back seeds, he brought back cuisine, uh, he brought back. Well, I mean, he stole France. Well, he filched, is a better word, rice from uh, Turin, special risotto that they had forbidden people to export, and he stuffed them in his pockets. Uh, uh, He, uh, yeah, I mean, his, his taste in wine, the notion of trying to grow wine in Virginia. Which they've done very successfully. Which they've done successfully. So he was that dread word foodie. Um, He (laughs) actually brought back recipes and things that people copied. Uh, Ice cream, uh, a sort of dessert ice cream in a hot pastry, kinds of things we take for granted. Uh, Vanilla, popularizing that, yeah. So So he brought back... But mainly wine, and and people commented (laughs) on... A number of people commented on the meals that were served at Monticello that were half French and half Southern. So that he got people thinking about that as a as a type of cuisine. Thank you, thank you. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History. Or visit us at nyhistory.org.